So Money episode 1071, Julie Almataveras, founder of Investing Latina. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. My parents themselves didn't grow up with much. So there was this sense of, well, how can you budget if you don't really have much money, if you don't really own a lot of assets? What is your survival number? Our guest today is a master at budgeting, even though, as you just heard her describe, she didn't grow up with all the best financial literacy or know-how, but she is self-taught and she is teaching a large community of Latina women, primarily on her YouTube and Instagram, Investing Latina. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Julie Almataveras joins us. I'm so excited. She and I are co-contributors to nextadvisor.com. As you know, I've been bragging about it. Next Advisor is my new favorite personal finance platform. I'm so lucky to contribute there. It is a new platform that has so much great rich information on how to save and how to build your credit, how to buy a home, how to budget in this climate, in this recession. How do we do it? Julie and I talk about her immigrant roots, investing at the young age of 19, and how she got herself out of five figures worth of credit card debt. It's debt that she hasn't even told her parents about, but she's telling us because that's what we do on this show. We just go there and we somehow end up talking about things we've never told anyone. (laughs) Here's Julie Alma Taveras. Julie Almataveras, welcome to So Money. Hi, Farnoosh. Thank you so much. I love the way you said it. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I, I, I really try. I really try. I think I asked you like eight times before we went live, like, how do you say it? Um, I'm just going to call you Julie from now yes. on. So for that's, I feel like I, I passed that test. Welcome to the show. It's so nice to connect with you voice to voice. I was so excited to see our names together on the Next Advisor website. Those of you listening, you know, nextadvisor.com is a new financial advice platform in partnership with Time. And Julie and I are both contributors. So much I want to explore with you from your platform, Investing Latina, to your own personal financial journey. But I think what I really like, I couldn't wait to ask you this question. I want to just start with it. Your article on Next Advisor about how to get to your bare bones budget, monthly budget. And you calculated, and a lot of us are doing this right now. We're like, if worst case scenario, if the world ends or if I lose my job, like how much do I need, actually need every single month? Your survival number, yours, Julie, is $581 a month. Yes. I know. It's crazy. (laughs) Tell us. Wait, how? Tell us how you got there. and, And then in that, tell us how we can all find our survival number. So I created my survival number right before the beginning of the year. So when I was in that mindset of what are my new year's goals going to be? 
What are the things that I want to do? I am uh, really interested in, in investing. And I spend a lot of the money that I have left over in uh, investing into the stock market and setting goals for real estate uh, buying. And I created the survival number with that purpose. So that was the real reason why I said, okay, what is the minimum that I need? And the things that are on that list, they're really just eight categories. So it's rent and utilities, groceries, dining out, transportation, household needs, clothing, health, and entertainment. So I just made a very simple, minimalistic type of budget where I listed those things and I figured out how much I need per month. And the biggest one and the reason why my survival number is so low is because my rent and utilities are 581. And my situation is that I master lease my apartment. So what that means is that I am in charge of the lease on the apartment. So I sign a two-year lease for this four-bedroom apartment that I have, four-bedroom, two-bathroom, and then I uh, lease out the rooms to other people. So I am cohabiting, and I don't refer to them kind of as roommates simply because we're not all contributing to the rent. I am the one that is uh, really, truly responsible for paying the rent on a monthly basis, just like my behalf, but they are also renting out these rooms. I understand the total monthly cost of the apartment is twenty three, around twenty three, twenty four hundred dollars, yeah. and your income from renting out these rooms is twenty three hundred dollars. So that's where you get the eighty six dollars that you are responsible for. I don't think I can do this in New York City, but you don't live in New York City. I don't live in New York City. I'm in Yonkers, New York. So yeah, the the we do have paperwork for it to be able to do that, and it has to kind of be like approved and stuff like that. So it is something that I don't think everybody can really do. And really, you know, it's something that you have to be comfortable with. And I write in the article about how cohabiting to me is so second nature, because when we all came here from the Dominican Republic, where my family immigrated from the Dominican Republic, we lived together in a two bedroom apartment. And there were so many of us. And as people were coming from DR to here to New York, we all kind of made it work. So for me, it's it's something that's very normal. But I know that a lot of people may not feel comfortable doing something like that. Well, we've talked about it on the show, if you really want to save, get out of a extreme debt, you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable for a little bit. This segues us nicely to talking more about your past, Julie. And I know that you, know, you moved here when you were four years old. Tell us a little bit about the culture of money that you grew up with. Yes, we moved here. My mom actually came to New York first. And then my, my dad and I came when I was four years old. And we all came really with the intent of working hard and living the American dream. So that was kind of like my mom's inspiration and, and what her whole family wanted to do. But the one thing that really kind of deters us from that is the fact that we are not comfortable talking about money in the family. So it's not something that's very normal for us. And I really think that it really comes from the fact that my parents themselves didn't grow up with much. So there was this sense of, well, how can you budget if you don't really have much money, if you don't really own a lot of assets, right? So those are the kind of things that I think impacted them, you know, their life and how they lived that really kind of also has impacted our generation per se. So mm -hmm. we didn't really talk about it go growing up, which, which, you know, kind of sucks in a way, because you would think that if, if, 
we had, maybe I would be much further ahead in life. But the thing about it is that what I did see from my parents is that they were hard workers and they were entrepreneurs. So my dad started his own businesses. He was a bodega owner for more than 25 years. And I watched my parents work 14, 16 hour days. And they instilled that in us, the importance of having a very good work ethic and Mm -hmm. working for yourself. And yet when you were 19, you began investing. So there was something in you that knew early on still, even without maybe the literacy or the conversations growing up, that this was an important place to be putting your money. How did you make that bridge? Yeah. So when I started working for a nonprofit at 19 and they offered the 401, 403B, which is the the nonprofit version of a 401k, um, they mentioned that they match. And I was like, wait a second, are you telling me this is free money? So for me, it was so like, uh, I didn't know I hadn't heard anything about it before, but when they told me you get free money and that was literally how the HR girl said it to me, I'm like, yes, please sign me up. That sounds good. (laughs) And I started super small. I think I started with $50 a paycheck. And at that point I had really no control of my money um, because I used to spend it all just shopping. So I studied fashion and that's the industry that I still actually happen to be in aside from now uh, writing about money. And I used to spend all of my money. And so I thought $50 wasn't going to hurt. And I did that. And it was the best decision I ever made because over the years, I just started contributing more and more money into my retirement account. And now 11 years later, I'm very proud to see it where it is. And now you're running your Instagram, YouTube, Investing Latina. Tell us about your community, largely Latina women. What are the questions that they come to you with that they feel they they can't really find the answers elsewhere? Because as we know, you know, personal finance advice it's personal and it really matters who is the person that's giving you the advice. You want to feel like there's a connection, that you have there's a trust, there's some sense of camaraderie. And so when they come to you, it's obviously because they like you and they trust you and they feel they feel comfortable around you. But what so what are they asking you that maybe um we everyone should know about so we can all better serve this market? Yeah, I think that the reason why everything, the Investing Latina itself kind of took off and has gained a following in just one year since I've launched it is really because, um, like you mentioned, people want to see someone that looks like them talking about the things that they're interested in. And the Investing Latinas that are in the community they want to talk about investing and they want to think about different strategies and they can see it in many different ways from other people, but then there are nuances when it comes to us uh, Latinas and the way that we make money, which isn't equivalent to the way that our peers, other uh, women, white women or men make money. We still make 54 cents to the dollar that they make. Um, so it's about navigating those things like that. Like, okay, I want to stay for a down payment of a, of a house, but I don't even make enough money to really get something in this neighborhood where I'm currently renting. So how do I do that? Do that? So I think it's having those conversations even beforehand talking about investing, you know? 
I wrote a book about female breadwinners and a number of the women I interviewed were Latina women. And I wonder, mm-hmm. is that a common theme within the marriages that the women are typically making more than their husbands? I think that even now more so, yes. I think that is kind of the case that's happening. I, in my family uh, system, There, that never has really been the case. The men have always started businesses and they, uh, women either joined the businesses like my mother did with my dad's bodega or they were homemakers. So for my specific situation, that didn't really, um, that wasn't really the case. But I think that now, which I'm, it's something that I'm very, very excited about, women are making a lot more than they used to. So I make more than my mother ever did and my and way more than my grandmother ever did. Uh, but in that situation where the woman is the breadwinner in the family, I think that it really also makes it a little bit difficult because of the sort of stereotypes that we think about, like the machismo that we think about when we mm-hmm. think about Latin culture. So those things really do come into play and, and affect, you know, how the relationships, essentially. You started your business through YouTube and Instagram, not a blog, not a podcast, not a book. So that must have been strategic. Actually, it wasn't. (laughs) Really? It wasn't. No, not at all. Because I really started with the intention of sharing my specific journey as I'm buying real estate and as I'm investing more and more into the stock market. So it was kind of, you know, it really was kind of like a a blog in a sense, because I was just sharing my journey. It just didn't have like a URL to it because I did it via Instagram and via YouTube where I was sharing my journey. But I think that even from the beginning in general, I'm very much of a teacher and I love to share my knowledge. I love to help other people. Like I always say that I do not want to die with any information in my mind that I did not share, you know? So as I learn things and, and as I grow, I always love to share that with my friends and with my followers and anybody that is interested in doing things that I'm, I'm doing, I love to share, you know, how you can get there. So I think that that's also why the page and the platforms grew pretty quickly because of my my love for it, for teaching. Mm-hmm. I understand that you were successful in getting out of debt. Quite yes. A bit of debt. So talk, take us back to that time. Where did the oh, debt come yes. from? How did you do it? You know, how are you working towards never going back to that situation again? That dark place. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, accumulated all of my debt from shopping. It's really, really crazy. It was basically Chanel bags and Louis Vuitton shoes that I was just like, I love it all. I have to have it all. So that's how it happened. I was fortunate enough to graduate from FIT, which is a state school here in New York. I didn't graduate with uh, with student loan debt. I had like one tiny loan that I paid off when I as soon as I um, got my first check essentially at my first job. And uh, my parents really helped me through that. They paid cash for tuition as I needed it. So I had that, that, that support, which was amazing. Um, but I think also having that support from a family that works hard and makes things uh, happen for their children, like a lot of Latino families do, they sacrifice everything for their children, um, also kind of gave me that sort of entitlement or, or flexibility where I felt like, oh, you know, 
I also just spend money because, you know, it's there, you know, and, and it comes and I'm in a city in New York and I work in fashion and I've always had jobs. I've always been like this side hustler, you know, I've always done so many things, but I never learned a foundation. I never learned what it is to manage your finances and, and how to prioritize things, how to make sure that you're covering your survival needs before you go into luxury shopping. And so I accumulated tons and tons of debt. And finally, um, one year I felt, I looked back and I felt all this shame and I'm like, how is it that my family is, you know, they're all business owners and they do so well. Why is it that I am just out of control and have nothing to my name? And that shame was really what led me to make a change. And I said, I'm going to get rid of this debt. I make money. I can do it. And I always was very mindful of uh, what my rental expenses were. So I stayed home and I just, you know, put my head down and didn't go out and cut a lot of all of the the extras that I was doing so that I can pay off this debt. And, and how much um, was it? How much was it like... So I've actually never publicly shared how Ooh. much debt I've had. And I think it really does have to do, even thinking about it right now, I'm like sweating. It really does have to do with that shame mm-hmm. that we that I felt around it. And I also kind of never told my parents about it. So I'm working through that. I, I mm-hmm. feel like I, I still can't say it out loud and it makes me, you know, very nervous to kind of even think about, mm-hmm. but, um, it was a lot. It was like, it was five figures, you know, it wasn't yeah. like six figure debt, but it, it, it was a lot of debt. And just the fact that I accumulated by going out shopping and fine dining is what really caused this, this sort of shame around it. And how long did it take you to be debt free? It took about a year and a half. Yeah. So it was a full year and a half. And I basically spent no money. I did no shopping. I did not go out to eat. I had to say no to my friends that wanted to go on vacation. So I I became a completely different person, essentially. Would you say Uh, that you saved over half of your income to be able to pay that down? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. For sure. I would probably, if I had to estimate it, probably more than 80% of my income wow. to, to pay it all down. Yeah. But you did so it. I did it. And now and you know I what was, you have to do if it yeah. happens again, which yeah. it won't. And I, I'll never go back. Forget it. I could never accumulate so, uh, credit card debt because we all know how much that interest is. Like who wants yeah. to pay 25% interest on a pair of shoes? It makes no sense. <laughs> It'll hurt more. When a pair of shoes them. that started at a crazy price on, and now you're paying interest on top of that. But is there something you still like to splurge on? I know you're making a name for yourself as like the extreme budgeter right now, but what do you like to, I mean, right now there's not a lot we can splurge on because of just, we can't go out as much as we used to, but what did mm-hmm. you used to up to the pandemic spend your money on that was considered a little bit of a, you know, self-care? You know, I haven't. No, I, I feel like I, I'm still a lover of fashion. Um, but I also have streamlined so many things in my life. Like my, what I wear, I have a capsule wardrobe that I just really buy replacements for. So I think I really got rid of all of those, um, vices when it came to, to what I was obsessed with spending on before. Now I'm, I'm focused on really, 
investing and I really like to still travel and do things like that. So if, if, and when we're able to do it, I will definitely be making that sort of my priority, you know, and that'll be my, my splurge, a nice vacation here or there to, to a new place because I do love adventure. I love exploring. So that will definitely still after all of this be, be kind of my little vice. And investing Latina, what's next? So I am working on the YouTube channel. I'm actually going through 31 days of blogging on YouTube and it's pushing me to limits that I've never been to. So I'm really excited about that. I'm continuing to contribute to Next Advisor. So I have a really cool article, um, kind of a little bit about that investment journey that I have that's coming up there. And I really want to continue to build the community so that women have a place to go to, to see someone that they can relate to, to feel comfortable asking questions, not feeling any shame about maybe having credit card debt, uh, because I've been there and, you know, I just wanted to share my story so that others feel a little bit less shame and a little bit more powerful. Well, thank you for your contributions. It's so needed. And I'm so happy that you're in the community now with us. Yes. Don't I'm be so a stranger. I'm so excited that we're doing it together. You saw I emailed you right away. Yes. Like, oh my God, we're in this together. So, so I'm, Adam, I'm if you're listening, forward. thanks for bringing us together. Adam Arama, <laughs> who runs Next Advisor. Um, really grateful for being in this, being in this camp with you. And um, we'll be watching. Thank you. Thanks so much to Julie for joining me. To find out how you can calculate your survival number, go to nextadvisor.com. Her article is there. To get more of Julie, head over to YouTube at youtube.com slash investing Latina, Instagram.com slash investing Latina, Twitter.com slash investing Latina. She's everywhere. Just look for the investing Latina. You'll find my friend Julie. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope your day is so money. <laughs> <laughs>